and welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. My name is Andy Woods. On today's episode, we're talking about optimizing learning environments to help maximize student progress. My guest is Dr. Catherine Forsey, who is a passionate advocate for science education and has particular expertise in the outdoor education sphere. Recently, she has also been sharing what the educational research says about optimizing classroom conditions in order that pupils get the maximum benefit from their learning time. In this discussion, we talk about the seven key abiotic factors that can influence effective learning in the classroom. Dr. Forsey has plenty to share in this interview, so without further ado, let's hear her view from the lab. Hi, Catherine. It's fantastic you could join us today on the View from the Lab podcast. Welcome. Well, thanks. Hi, Andy. Thank you for inviting me along. That's okay. I always like to start off with my guests to find out a little bit about their sciencey background. Um, I'd like to start. I always like to start when um, kind of your school days, really, I guess, and and, and how you were inspired to be or, or follow kind of science pathway. So, what was it that really got you into science as a young younger person? Oh gosh, um, I don't think it was just one thing. I I do remember that we used to go into a different room for science sometimes at primary school, which was always quite exciting, just moving to a different space. I think it was the library space, but randomly in my memory, there was also some PE equipment in there that sometimes we'd end up using for seats and desks. So you'd have this squidgy desk. Um, And I remember really clearly that there was lines of string hung up across the room and sending balloons across them. So I'm guessing that was a physics activity, Uh, but my memory is a terrible thing. And so primary memories are a bit hazy, but I do remember science being that most fun subject where we would be getting up, moving around, doing things. And then at secondary school, so I was talking to my mum about this and she said that I was 11 and I told her that I wanted to be a scientist. And that's kind of stuck with me. So that must have been my first year at secondary school. And I remember my secondary biology teacher, who was Mrs. Green, and that was at South Hunsley Secondary School over in the East Riding of Yorkshire. She played a really big part in my education. And I've got really clear memories still of A-level biology practicals. And we got to do independent research practicals. And I think it was completely the hands-on nature of science that I love because that's what I've taken with me even now and then my dad he was a an airframe fitter at British Aerospace so he built aircraft his whole life so he was always showing me and my sister how to fix things how to use tools and I think that started my fascination with how things work and I found at school that science was a lot of the the answer to that so it had the most similarities to those practical hands-on things and it was a subject where you got to do stuff and that's that's where um that's what got me into science and that's where my my passion and interest was really sparked. And did you ever find science hard? I mean science and maths are always kind of um kind of often thought of as being the harder subjects is it something you found difficulty at any point or did you breeze through it and uh, find everything easy <laughs> at primary and secondary school I was okay because I was one of the sort of studious types and I listened to my teachers and I did as I was told so science and maths I always found quite straightforward and I was I was lucky because I was one of the students who was happy to sit and learn in the way that I was being taught um, so no I, I was always fine with science and maths at school um, it was kind of a bit further on where I found it all a bit more challenging as the difficulty increased. So I guess uh, obviously you, you moved on so obviously you, love, you talk about biology already and you, and you love biology and of course you went on to do biology at, at university yeah? Yeah. yeah I did so I went on to study biology at university I had done A-levels in biology chemistry and geography and I struggled with the chemistry because it was at A-level where my my natural abilities were sort of getting unpicked a little bit more. And I struggled a little bit with the maths element of the chemistry. And there were just areas of it that I just couldn't get to grips with. Whereas biology, I still felt really comfortable in that subject. And the, the ethos that came from my teachers and my parents was keep going with the subjects that you love and you enjoy. And for me, for my A-levels, biology was definitely my favourite. So, yeah, I went on to do a, a BSc. It was in molecular cell biology, and that was with a year in industry. And I did that at the University of York. And I really enjoyed that course, but it was challenging. I, it makes me reflect and think that I just must have peaked at A-level. Because <laughs> I, found, 
quite quickly in my first year at uni that it didn't matter how hard I worked. I, I could very rarely ever get a first. I was never getting the top scores. There were always people who were doing better than me, which was a bit of a shock to the system because at GCSE and A-level, it was always if you worked hard, you got good grades. And I think I found in my degree, I was like, right, this is harder and it doesn't matter how hard I work. I'm, I'm maybe just not good enough to get that that first. But it, it didn't put me off. I was kind of aware that it was the standard that was higher and I would just keep doing my best. Um, and what I found was uh, at the University of York, they had these massive, fantastic teaching laboratory spaces. And again, I found that that was the space that I really enjoyed. I look forward to those big taught practical sessions where we, we got to do hands on science. Um, so but but that the favourite part of my undergraduate degree was definitely my year in industry. Um, I spent it at a company called Syngenta which is an agricultural technology company. And I was in the genetic toxicology department. And that was where all the chemicals that we use to help plants produce the best yields were tested to make sure that they were safe. So I had a whole year there to develop um, an in vitro micronucleus assay. And that whole point of that was to help identify safe levels of chemicals and also to try and replace the previously in vivo testing that had used animals. So I really enjoyed that we were developing in vitro alternatives and it was to do with safety and the environment. But what I think I found I loved the most was the routines and the laboratory standard operating procedures of methods and steps and protocols. And some of those I was developing brand new, but I really liked the methodical nature and study of science and how you would alter your variables and what your results would be. And I got really excited about that. And that company where I was at Syngenta, it was a really supportive environment. And I developed lots of my research skills and working independently. Um, and that really informed kind of what I felt like I wanted to do next. Apologies for this brief interruption to the podcast, but I just wanted to let you know about our GCC Science Network on Wednesday, January the 19th, 4 till 5.30, 2022. If you're listening to this after that date, feel free to fast forward this ad. However, if you are a Pearson edXL teacher, we are running one of our regular Science Network events. And this time we've got a special guest, Dr. Tracy Baxter, who's going to be running a session on being exam fit for 2022. At the time of recording this advert, the exams are still going ahead. If this is something you feel may be useful to you or your department, please book yourself a place as places are limited. In this session, Tracy will be covering how edXL exams are structured, how to be confident with your tier entry decisions, getting to grips with exam command words, ways to tackle extended response questions, and other good exam techniques. If you'd like to join us on the day, all you need to do is to book your place is to type into your favorite search engine, Pearson PD Academy. It should return you with the right link to get you onto our Academy page. And then put Baxter, that's B-A-X-T-E-R, into the search box, and the event should pop up. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the podcast. What was your PhD focus on? Was it a similar kind of area that you worked in industry? Was it completely different? Well, you'd, you'd think that. So because I, I loved the year in industry, I came back to York and talked to my undergraduate supervisor. And I said, I've loved this year doing research in industry. And I'd like to do more of that next. But I don't really know what that looks like. And he told me about PhDs and what a doctorate was. And I was the first in my family to go to university, so I didn't know what PhDs were. Um, it was interesting explaining it to my family that I wanted to stay at university for another three years and not leaving what they call a proper job um, and, and what that research was. Um, my, PH, um, my undergraduate supervisor, he said that they were, applications were open at the university for people to come and do PhDs, and he had one in his research lab, and that was looking at... Um, development of uh, embryos so embryos from fertilization uh, through to implantation so it's that first seven days of life and explained the project and I, I read some information about it in some of the research papers and I thought wow that sounds really interesting and uh, this was with Professor Henry Lease and his team was part of um, the work that had been done to help develop IVF and to help keep 
embryos um, alive in vitro before they're implanted back into the womb. Sorry, the wrong language used there. I get in trouble for calling it an embryo. Um, but to help keep the little bundles of cells alive before they're implanted back into a uterus. Um, and it was it just sounded fascinating to me. So I applied and I was successful and I started my PhD in pre-implantation embryo development. But I got to look at gene expression and protein activity and, and where those proteins were localised. And there was lots of um, bench work, growing cells and developing the culture media. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed my, my PhD work. Um, and it was it was a fabulous three years, but oh, it was, again, really challenging. Because anyone who's done a PhD or any type of biology research will tell you sometimes it just doesn't work. And sometimes it cannot work for a year. And, you know, you hear them talking about resilience a lot now, um, but something not working for a year is really soul destroying. And you just keep going and you're in this um, really supportive science community and you're just trying to find answers. And the whole point of a PhD is that you are advancing scientific knowledge in a really specific field. So if somebody knew how to do it, it wouldn't be a PhD. It has to be new science. It has to be new discoveries. And that at times can be frustrating because nobody finds the answer straight away. No, I know. And you've obviously got a very strong relationship between you and the University of York because you've obviously spent quite a big chunk of your kind of career there, and but also lots of research there as well. So I guess you know that very well. I mean, uh, and York's famous for its um, support of science education. Uh, it was that how you kind of transitioned from your very specific PhD to looking at science education? Was there like a period just after your PhD where you did something different or did you go straight into looking at education? How did that transition happen? Well, as, as most of these things, it was blended, really. Uh, as soon as I started my PhD and I was postgraduate, I became um, a graduate teaching assistant. So I, I did some work within my department helping to support undergraduate and a big part of of that um sort of teaching assistant role really came to the fore in the summer holidays because the university ran a scheme called the National Academy for Gifted and Talented Youth which invited young children i think they were age 13 to 18 who were in secondary schools who were studying and really wanted to take their studies a bit further and they brought them to the university for two weeks for a summer school so they could be among like-minded children who were really passionate about a subject and I helped to look after the biology one and it was one of the professors who was helping to lead that summer school who said to me you know you should really think about teaching um and I, I enjoyed the summer schools. I enjoyed being part of the university open days and showing people around and what I was discovering was Yes, I loved science and I loved science research and I am a scientist in my heart, but I like people. And sometimes being in a light and temperature controlled two meter by two meter room for hours on ends, clicking buttons on a computer, doing assays um, was great to get the results, but it's quite lonely. And I wanted to move into something where me, the fact that I'm comfortable speaking and working with people and I love sharing science. I wanted to move into something where that was um, a bit more useful. So the other side of my skill set could be used. Um, and I didn't feel like um, as, a, as a researcher, because at that time there wasn't as much outreach and public communication of science. I wanted to move into a field where I could do more of that and less of the bench science. Um, and whilst I was writing up my PhD thesis, an advert came up for a job at the Yorkshire Arboretum. Now they don't know this, but when I looked up what that job was about, I actually had to look up what an Arboretum was. It was a terrible thing to admit that I was a first year PhD student, I didn't know, but I studied animals. I studied molecular biology and I had to look it up and I'd never been taken to one as a child. So they were looking for an education development officer and that's what sucked me in. Um, some of the people who were interviewing were profs they'd done their background in in research themselves so they knew where I was coming from and I researched that job and I went in with a portfolio and said if you make me this if you give me this job this is what I will give you and I showed them all my ideas and how I'd linked everything together and how I how I could deliver in that role and somehow I got the job um so I worked at the Yorkshire Arboretum for five years running their education and outdoor learning program working with teachers I think we had 20,000 pupil visits in that five years wow. so thousands of children came to me to be taught 
outdoor activities and all of it was linked to the curriculum. So we did a lot of outdoor science and ecology, um, ecology fieldwork, and that really sparked my passion for outdoor learning and education. Um, and then I've managed to just seeing the children thrive in that environment. There was one little boy who came up to me at the end of the day, or they often do, and said, thank you very much. You know, had, you know, really enjoyed it. It's like, no problem, we'll speak. Bye-bye, have a safe journey. And the teacher approached me afterwards and she said, that little boy does not talk to adults at our school. And he, and he very rarely talks to children in our class. So he was selectively mute most of the time. On that day in the Arboretum, he talked to his friends, he talked to the teacher and he talked to me. And they just saw that transformation in him. And I was getting to sort of see firsthand how transformative the outdoor learning environment could be. And I got more and more interested into why that was and how that happened. And that sort of moved me along the career path that I've then followed. Okay. And did you, because you obviously worked with lots of teachers during that time. Um, you didn't, you, you didn't, were you keen to, or you weren't, um, you never went down the route of teaching in schools or colleges yourself. Was it because you just enjoyed the kind of, it was the outdoor aspect, which you're not going to get in a, in a classroom, I guess, would that be true? Or? I'd had quite a few friends, you can imagine from a PhD course, who'd finished PhDs and had gone off to become secondary school biology teachers. Yeah. Um, and I'd heard from them about their experiences and how they were finding it. And it just didn't feel like it was for me, which is quite funny now because I've recently become a chartered science teacher. So I, <laughs> I love teaching. I've got my chartered status. I just didn't want to teach in a secondary school at that point. And I'm not saying that I might not do that further down the line. But it. I, and then when I went into the Arboretum, it spoke to me even more about, I mean, I don't like to call it an alternative learning environment, but it's just different ways of being able to teach without being a classroom teacher and I, I found lots of ways to being able to do that that I find really exciting. And then you moved, uh, was the next step working for the ASE and what made you move there? It was, um, much much to my dad's despair, um, I'd been at the Arboretum for a year and then I asked, I, I dropped down from four day, from five days a week to a four day a week job. Um, so I just had a proper job for a year and then I went, I dropped a day a week because um, I was approached by the Woodland Trust to do a project for them on their nature detectives resources, which lots of people will be familiar with. But I did that for six months and then I had this one day a week and I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to go back to full time work. I really enjoyed the variety of this, this little bit of freelance on the side and um and it wasn't long after that that a job came up with the ASE, so the Association for Science Education. They wanted a field officer for Yorkshire. And the incumbent, Phil Ramsden, a lovely chap, had been with, working for the ASE for many years. He was stepping down from his field officer role. And I applied and I went in and I was the youngest field officer they'd had. Um, and I just really enjoyed working with teachers and setting up network events and giving them the opportunity to share their skills and come together. And I was with the ASE for about five years and I loved it. And the ASE community, um, ASE family, as they're often referred to, just just wonderful. That community of science teachers, um, I, I, they brought me into their community and I loved working with them. Um, and of course, the ASE and, and being there that one day a week, that was a lovely stepping stone. Um, when I eventually left the Arboretum, it was a stepping stone into my next role. I see. And, uh, and that was at STEM? Yes, yeah, I went to the National, well, it was the National Science Learning Centre at the time, and now it's the National STEM Learning Centre in York. Um, and I went to be part of their training and development programme for technical staff in higher education. So it was a different sector again. I've been working with primary and secondary school children and teachers, and then yeah. this role was supporting technical staff within universities. So, of course, I come from a university background. I'd worked with higher education technicians and in, in labs and they'd supported me with my research and they'd been part of our team. Um, and then we were working with 70 universities across the country and helping with the training and development of their technical staff. It was a programme called Heated and I, I loved it. So again, I was there for five years, but still on the side, I'd always kept this bit of freelance work. So I was still with the ASE and I went to STEM learning four days a week. And then I had my son and I went back part-time and took the opportunity to reduce my hours went to three days a week and I built up my um, freelance work a little bit more and started working for 
Gratnalls as their learning rooms consultant and a few different organisations. So I was getting to keep a real diverse portfolio of work. And I'd been at STEM Learning for five years when my freelance portfolio developed to a point where I could go fully independent. So that was about three years ago now. I've been working for myself. I've been working for myself for a full year before the pandemic. Okay, yeah, because I was going to ask you, did, did I mean, it sounds as if you your job, I suppose, did, didn't, well, it must have changed a little bit, but during the pandemic, how did things affect you? Like, you know, were there any things that you've reflected on now uh, where, I know it's not over, but hopefully it's becoming more stable, perhaps. Um, uh, what did you learn from that that time period, you know, personally or professionally, and are there any things that you did you changed because of it? Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. I, I think... I'd actually probably done, because it, it struck in, in the March, April crime, didn't it? So I was just coming up to my second, I've completed, it would have been two years in July that I'd been self-employed and I just had my best year ever. And then, and then the pandemic hit. And over the course of two or three weeks, I got phone calls or emails from every single one of my clients or conference organisers and everybody was trying to work out what to do and everything was being postponed or cancelled. And my both of my children were at home. So for four months, everything kind of just stopped. I, I joke, I say, I feel like I went back to the 1920s because my husband's job didn't stop. He was in a sector where he was still very much needed and they were working flat out. And then all of my work had paused um, and I had my two children at home. And I was so grateful for all of my outdoor learning experience because that that April, May, June, July, we had a, a great time in the garden and w- having walks around local woodlands. And all my kit from the garage was getting pulled out. And I started to share things on social media to say, look, you can get outdoors with your children. These are the sort of free things you can do. And still trying to find a way to connect with teachers in the education community by doing um my son called it mummy school so mummy school uh was four months and we just did all sorts of things together and I'd really look back on it fondly now I mean it was terrible at the time because it was just such a massive I I joke it was like an unplanned third maternity leave it's like here you go just stop work all this work you've got into building up your business just stop that for a while um and but no, we just had a, a great time doing all sorts. And I tried just not to think about it and thought, you know, this has been done unto us. We're just going to try and make the best of it. And I was lucky that my husband was still working. Um, but it it did force a lot of changes. And I do feel that some of them were positive. I mean, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast now um, if, if that hadn't have happened. I had to move quite a few of my CPD workshops for teachers and technicians. They all had to transition to be online. Um, teaching ecology fieldwork online is something I never thought I would do and I've done hours and hours of it and I've done videos filmed in my garden of how to lay out transects and quadrats and do all these different techniques and and I've taught it online and people have been so positive that you've gone to the effort to teach those skills and techniques but you're just doing it remotely Um, I I would never have tried to do that because there'd never have been a demand for it and I've reached so many people. I mean, I've been doing a webinar series and we've had people coming from all over the world and people say, no, I wish you could come to my school in Singapore and show us some of that. I'm like, wow, you know, I'd love to. Um, these are people who I would never normally get to train, never normally get to influence their practice in their classroom. And if it wasn't for the pandemic, I don't think that would have happened. And now there's very much a blended style. As, as a consultant working with the different clients that I do, we're not having to travel as much, which is much better for the environment. We're able to have meetings over Zoom, and I'm sure a lot of those practices, where they're needed, they'll be maintained. Okay, I'm going to change tack slightly now. The main reason I wanted to talk to you today was to share with you your knowledge of learning environments and how to optimise them. Uh, and we're going to delve into that area of research. Could you give us an overview of the research by Professor Stephen Heppel and his team? What are those key seven key factors that affect learning? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I've been working as Gratnell's Learning Rooms and STEM consultant for about seven years now. And you might have heard of Gratnell's. They make the world famous Gratnell's tray that's found in pretty much every school in the UK. Uh, Most children have one at primary school to keep their work in and they're used by secondary science technicians and DT technicians to store and distribute the practical equipment. So through my work with Gratnell's, they've always been 
taken this really keen interest in learning environments, so the spaces in which their trays are used. And going beyond that, they're really focused on how those learning spaces can be optimised to improve learning and outcomes for the children. So the Grapnell's Learning Rooms programme and their Planning Learning Spaces initiative helps schools to develop their existing and new build classrooms and learning spaces to ensure the best possible environment for teaching and learning. And that work is based on many years of published research by Professor Peter Barrett and others, and it really highlights the huge impact of the learning environment on pupil outcomes. And I think of it as the science of learning environments. And for me, as a biologist and the chartered science teacher, it, it, the whole area is fascinating and it's combining all of my different areas of expertise and um, experience. And then through, through Gratnell's Learning Rooms, I was introduced to Professor Stephen Heppel and his work around learning environments. So Professor Heppel, he's one of the UK's leading experts in learning environment research. So Professor Heppel and his team, they look at these really tiny details that singly, they just sound like common sense. So better light, better temperature, better ventilation, less CO2. But together, the aggregation of marginal gains, it has the power to transform learning. He's taken some of the principles from his sport research. You think of it as athletes trying to finely tune their skills. It's those principles that have been applied to classroom environments. And of course, Professor Heppel says that with children in our schools uh, here in the UK and all over the world, those children are working really hard to be the best that they can be. And what Professor Heppel and his team are trying to do is give them the environment that allows them to reach their personal best every day of their learning lives. So what Professor Heppel's done, um, he's invented a device that's called the Learnometer, uh, and that's been available through Grattles. So that's how it all came together for me. And this Learnometer device simultaneously monitors and records those seven key environmental factors that you asked about. And they've been found to have the biggest impact on learning. So those seven factors are carbon dioxide, volatile organic compounds known as VOCs, fine dust, which is PM 2.5. So that's things with a size of less than 2.5 microns, um, light temperature, humidity and noise. And each one of those seven can negatively impact on pupil performance. But if we address them together, that's where we see the biggest impact on learning outcomes, pupil behaviour and attitudes to learning. And when you think about those factors, obviously there's a lot, lot, lots to talk about. I mean, things like the light levels, um, I guess that's one of the most straightforward ones, I guess, teachers could alter. I know obviously they've got the physical limitations of how many windows they've got in their classroom and they can't control what their class, you know, how many windows have been put in the first place. But is there is there anything they can do to try and maximise to more, more optimum levels? What, what what, what what kind of things could they do to kind of make that happen? Yeah, absolutely. And what's been really nice about this research is it focuses on simple, practical things that teachers can do to make positive changes. So light. So one of the problems of, of, of light is at low levels, learning is impeded and behaviour suffers. And of course, if you get uneven levels across the classroom, you've got a dark corner, then that creates equity issues. So what we're aiming for is high levels of natural light. And of course, the electrical light in all schools have um, looking for suitable and that's high Kelvin values. That's the right type of artificial light. So, yeah, you know, removing obstructions from glass. So lots of schools have, um, that we've worked with have implemented a clear glass policy. So that's no posters and banners and work and things that are obstructing the light coming in through the windows. Painting their walls and ceilings in a high refraction index paint. So, you know, the next time your classroom's getting decorated, you know enough to make the request that the right type of paint is used. And then, of course, modifying displays and fixtures. So if you are stapling up some uh, sugar paper, you're thinking about what colour you put up and what that's going to do to affect the light being bounced around the room. And then, like I said, picking those bright white LED bulbs. So they're the natural daylight ones with Kelvin values of over 5,000. Okay, and um, thinking about, I'm just going to jump to temperature now because I was just thinking about temperature and 
at the moment the the increased amount of ventilation for obvious for obvious reasons and um what kind of good temperature ranges because they will say it's uh, you know it's cooler is better than, than than warmer i guess but what's the what's the optimum temperature range for for learning um suggesting this research so there's a, a bank of research that's sort of informed where we've got to with the learnometer so far and it suggests that it's learning's optimal between 18 and 21 degrees c and outside of that range, you start to see performance dipping. Okay. So it's um. So I guess in Yorkshire, they might need to te- put the heating on there <laughs> earlier, earlier in other parts of the UK. Absolutely. Or as my grandma would say, put on a jumper. Yes, true. Um, that is true. So it's it's looking at um. We know that the levels of temperature impact children's achievement and task performance and attention span. But actually, often it's the adults that feel the cold more than the kids because they're naturally moving around a little bit more. So it's difficult at different times of year while we're trying to keep that ventilation because ventilation isn't just about um, viruses that might be passed on in the air. It's about um, keeping CO2 levels low. And CO2 is one of the primary factors that we've looked at with the Learnometer study um, and is thought to have the biggest impact on learning. So, yeah, let's jump to CO2 then. So is there any is there easy ways to kind of monitor CO2 for teachers? Is, is that quite a tricky one for teachers to kind of get a handle on and how could they control those levels when they when they feel like it's going a bit too high? Well, sometimes it's a bit of a feeling. I mean, we've all walked into the classroom that just feels a bit stuffy and a bit smelly. So that's yeah. your instinct, rely on that. Of course, the government are distributing slowly some CO2 monitors into classrooms. Uh, CO2 is one of the things that's monitored by the learnometer, and that has a digital display that gives you the reading all of the time. So we know that levels above a thousand parts per million increase sleepiness and they hamper the ability to concentrate. And the severity of symptoms increases as levels of CO2 increase. And it varies from person to person. So some people will be more susceptible to the effects than others. And because CO2 is heavier than air, the level, the, the CO2 concentrations at children's head height level when they're sitting yeah. are going to be higher than the teacher who might be stood or in a higher chair in a different part of the classroom. So we have to think about what levels are like for our classroom. And that's why we always suggest putting the learnometer monitors at a child head height in the classroom space. So you're really picking up what conditions are like for your learners. Um, it's quite easy to see how if CO2 levels rise and What's lovely about the Learnometer is it transmits data to a dashboard. So you can see when a classroom becomes occupied, you can watch on the graph as CO2 levels start to increase throughout the morning session if there's ventilation. And they quite quickly by mid-morning get above a thousand parts per million. And we can do comparisons on those graphs. So again, the science side comes into it. We can do comparisons on those graphs between a well-ventilated classroom and a not ventilated classroom. And then the, the research will tell us how much the children's learning has been impacted by that. So ventilation doesn't just look like, because we're talking about solutions here. Um, if we're thinking about CO2, um, is opening doors and windows and having low level vents so that the, the heavier gas can escape um, and fresh air is coming in at the top. Um, using break times to ventilate. So if we are, if we do have a particularly cold and horrible winter, throwing open all the doors and windows at break times, that can give you a sweep of fresh air through and that really does help to reset some of the levels. But of course, continuous ventilation is is ideal um, fans can be used to help circulate the air because if the children are sitting and they're not moving around much then you don't get a lot of, of air circulation and you need that circulation to bring that fresh air in but it's sometimes in some areas got to be a little bit careful when it comes to just opening windows because there's also that a lot of research done around the inner city schools and air pollution so that where the volatile organic compounds, the VOCs and the particulate matter come in. If your school's by a very busy road, just opening the windows, yes, it could lower your CO2, but you need to be aware of the quality of air that you're bringing into the classroom. So that's why not just monitoring one factor is important. You need to know whether you need to air condition or air purify as well as just ventilate. So there's there's a lot of science behind, you know, what is the best air for children to be breathing um, and helping them and, and not that's not going to negatively impact on their learning. 
You know, I was thinking about, um, I can't remember, I read it now, but the, the impact of, you're talking about open windows and the, the effects of uh, noise. And I can't remember, I think it was in a German city where they were lo- looking at um, uh, the effect on children's attainment and, and how they moved the students or, or, the, or, the, or I think the whole school moved location and they had a, a, a big impact on their attainment. So I guess it's quite difficult in a more of an urban environment, I guess, for schools in terms of getting that ventilation right, plus avoiding, I guess, if you're near a very busy road and getting external noise or sirens or what have you. Um, so that's quite tricky, I guess. And I suppose it needs a bit of an investment of good double glazed windows, which you don't often have in many schools in terms of controlling both, you know, being a bit more selective about how much air you let in and out and, and obviously the downside of having external noise, I guess. And it's it's these physical factors. As a ecologist, you'd think of it as abiotic conditions. So the yes. environmental factors in which invertebrates are living, we think about the abiotic conditions and the environment in our classroom where our children are learning and how yes. we can positively influence that. And yet noise is a problem around schools. So that's why sometimes they'll look at... Um, noise dampening planting so you might see big trees up around uh, school school boundaries to help dampen some of that noise it's about knowing what the conditions are like in your outside area so i say to anybody with a learnometer say take it outside understand what the levels are outside uh, each aspect so go to north south east and west of your school take your device with you know what your outside readings are because then you know Where's the noise coming from? Where's the pollution coming from? You know, are there sides of the school where it's better to open windows here? And can we circulate air through in a different way? So it's knowledge. Once you know what your indoor and outdoor environment is, then you can take steps to optimise that for your school. I was thinking about your, um, obviously, good practice of not having too many, um, th- you know, things obscuring windows in classrooms. But obviously, the other, the other challenge of your your particular classroom geography, wherever you might be, and whether your classroom is somewhere where people are walking past a lot of the time or whatever, and children obviously get distracted by moving objects, you know, going past, but but marrying that up with, the, obviously, the need to have good natural light. And obviously, that's a challenge. And lots of different schools will have different types of, of challenges in that, in that respect, I, I guess. And again, that's where outdoor planting can really help. So you might completely clear your windows and you've got a beautiful open glass, but then you might have a south-facing classroom and the sunshine blazes in to such a point where the children are just melting. And then you go outside that temperature range and they're too hot. And that becomes a real challenge. So again, that's where sometimes you can put up plant screens, you could have bamboo, you could have all sorts of things that have natural shading, or you have external shade that provides shutters. And that could be louvred. Um, I've seen lots of schools have the kind of louvred shutters on the outside of the buildings. They can control the sunlight and the light levels. It might be the planting, it might be an awning. There's, there's lots of different approaches that you can take when you drum down into what's optimal and how can we achieve that and blinds can be good but like you say sometimes you know there's other evidence that says views of nature and being able to see outside are are very beneficial for children so it's 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 not just the air you're letting in but the quality of the air it's not just the view you've got but the quality of the view and it's it's being aware of that and and seeing what changes you can make at a local level yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess, um, would it be true to say that when you're looking at CO2 levels, do the humidity levels kind of go up at the set, virtually the same rate when you close the classroom door and does the humidity start to rise? Would that be the case or is that uh, too simplistic to kind of... No, well, temperature and humidity are really closely linked. Right, yeah. So um, if, if you are well ventilated, then that's going to help keep your humidity down. If you think the source of the humidity is the children breathing in and out, because yeah. there's lots of different sources of humidity. Um, so it's it's knowing what they are. So yes, children breathing out is one. But then outdoor shoes and clothing, if they've come in from puddles and a wet playtime, where do they hang their outdoor coats and shoes and is that impacting the classroom environment and most schools have those hung up outside but some might have them in the classroom condensation on windows we've all been in classrooms where it's just dripping down the windows rugs rugs are really common in especially in EYFS and key stage one where you put them in the circle time but they're brilliant at tra- trapping damp um, and then depending on the age of your school structures damp in structures and then any leaks in plumbing and then, of course, your lack of ventilation. So ventilation really helps to keep humidity down, but it's multifactorial. So again, we've learned through the learnometer, it's, it's 
learn about what causes your damp and then you can think of your solution. So you might not have rugs, you might have a painted, you know, you might have the floor demarked in a different way. Um, you might have a dehumidifier, you might have the shoes and outdoor clothes stored away in a really well ventilated space. Um, there's, there's lots of different things you can do. Plants. Plants are really useful for helping to balance humidity in a space. Um, so it, it's just different solutions that you can find once you've identified what the problems are within your learning environment. Yeah, definitely. I think I remember in my time as a teacher, especially teaching chemistry, is that you've also got this uh, this problem that you may be using Bunsen's, for example, and you have um, you've got this issue that is is that you couldn't have the windows. Um, uh, the blinds not down sometimes because they couldn't see the flame all these kind of other safety considerations that but you're trying to get the right light in so yeah it's kind of a complex complex problem with lots of different activities going on in, in, in a science lab and there's no there's, there's no one you know great you know solution to solve them all but can you tell us about talk about plants a minute ago can you tell us about plant walls what are they all about how do they help um, the learning environment so plant walls have become quite increasingly popular of late um so Lots of people might see them in action. I know where we are in York, there's a massive one on the side of the Marks and Spencer. You know, people are having um, plant ceilings as well as plant walls. But the idea is, is to bring greenery into a space where there wouldn't normally be greenery. And quite often classrooms are devoid of plants. So we know that plants help to balance humidity because sometimes as well as being too damp, classrooms can be too dry. So the dampness in the soil can help balance that. Um, so plants help to balance the humidity. They're also great oxygen producers. So we can use plants as that positive um, influence on the environment. Plants are also good at dampening sound. So they help to keep noise down. So there's been lots of studies done around the, um, if you're introducing plants into classrooms, what's the impact that it has on learning? And of course, with the Learnometer, we can measure what influence does it have on the learning environment and the conditions. Um, so Professor Heppel and his team, they've been leading a project um, with Fingering Ho Primary School where they've had a bring your own plants team. So children can bring their own plants into the classroom and they label them with them with the, give the plant a name and they can help to nurture it. So there's the benefits of you know owning a plant, nurturing a plant, but then there's the positive environments of plants on the learning environment. Studies have shown that it helps to support children with who have additional learning needs. The, the benefits of plants in the environment are clear. Um, and then there's the, the lovely data studies around um you know, identical classrooms, one with plants and one without, and then you can track the data around um, uh, attainment and you can track uh, reported coughs, colds and sick absence days. And the impact of plants is all positive just through bringing some plants to the classroom and plant walls are a way of doing that. So it's a dedicated space with, with lots of plants. Now I've seen that done on shelves. I've also seen it done in dedicated plant wall structures. Um, and it just depends on what your needs are, what your space is like and, and what your budget looks like. But they plant walls have a positive impact on the learning environment. And I always think in a school, it's once you've got one started is lots of people love growing plants at home. You'll probably be overwhelmed with transentia and spider plants and coleus and ivy and all these evergreen plants. And once you've got it established, they just thrive and thrive. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say. I quite like the idea of um, the children taking ownership, which I guess may work in primary a bit better than secondary in terms of the you know their ownership of the plants. Because um, again, as a former teacher, think about the maintenance of all these plants, all these plants being watered. I think it'd be good, yeah, for the kids to get involved and to um, uh, you know, as I say, uh, care care for their plants. I think that's a good 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 lesson in itself. So, what are the best um, plants? So you talk about a few, but what are the best plants? What would you suggest for plants that kind of kind of low maintenance but have they're not really expensive that, that, that are good to good for science labs and you know these plant walls any any suggestions on that yeah so i've already mentioned a few um and my personal favorites i like um aloe spider plants and okay transentia transentia is a really lovely one because it's got purple on one underside of leaves and green on the other which is really yeah. nice for showing the stomata so you can use them in practicals brilliant, um, brilliant. beyond that um Professor Heppel uh, and his team have worked with, um, uh, looked at the list that has come from NASA, because of course there are other people who are thinking about plants and the benefits of plants. And if we wanted to colonize another planet, 
we probably need some plants to help moderate the learning environment. So not the learning environment, sorry, the, the living and breathing environment of that planet. So NASA have a list of ideal plants for colonization. Um, and then um, they've looked at that list uh, to see of those lists, which ones would be safe to have in schools. Yes, of course, not all of those plants are going to be safe to have around children. So there's a lovely article um, that we've got on the Learnometer website around how we get the CO2 down and the learning up. And then they've picked out that ideal list of plants. So they've got um, dwarf, um, aretha palms, Boston ferns, devil ivy, Chinese evergreen, spider plants and aloe, which is always nice to see spider plants and aloe because they're some of my faves. So there, there are curated lists. So if schools were thinking, I want to make a plant wall, which are the best ones for absorbing our CO2 and which ones are going to be um, safe to have around the children. The, the lists that have been put together to help support with that. And where did I go for that? Sorry, could you say, repeat that? On the uh, Learnometer website. Learnometer. So you can okay. pop a link to that through, no problem. Cool. Uh, we'll put a link, link to that at the end. Um, in terms of, so coming towards the end of uh, the podcast now, but um, talking, obviously you're very passionate about outdoor learning. Um, you work work for, for many years with school teachers um what kind of things would you suggest because school some school teachers maybe are not uh, aware of maybe all the possibilities about learning is there anything you suggest to them to you know the advantage about learning or activities you think really work work well or, or quite easy to do in a school environment um with i suppose minimal you know uh, green space because some schools are, are not blessed with that um what would you suggest they start with in terms of uh, encouraging more of that type of learning in their in their classes yeah, absolutely. I think um, all my years of working in this, this area, I'm thoroughly convinced that especially the primary curriculum is every single primary curriculum subject we taught outside, um, not just science. Of course, with science, we have plants, living things in their environment, habitats, all of activity runs through the curriculum and children are required to do studies of their local environment. It, it says so. So my life is about curriculum-based outdoor learning. And I think many of those subjects are taught more easily outside because there's real concrete things that children can touch and feel. So if you're going to learn about the structure of a plant, go and see some. Um, Your school might be mostly concrete, but there'll probably be trees visible from your school grounds, if not within your school grounds. And there's so much learning to be done within that. And even if um, you are a, a concrete school with not much greenery, you can move away from the biology and start doing your chemistry and physics outside and that might be launching rockets that might be um you know pop bottles where you're exploding co2 out of out of um little canisters to show that gas is being produced and you can do it across all different subject areas solar systems on the playground are always really positive and i've been through the entire science curriculum at primary to teach pretty much every single section of it outdoors and then there are challenges at secondary because the way that um subjects are taught in silos with individual teachers so just might have children for an hour or maybe a double period a, a bit longer um to actually get them outdoors to do something and get them back in again they've not got as much flexibility but always would start in in biology because it's my passion subject um as to different ways we can teach outside can we collect our own samples they have to study ecology field work but then again when they're doing chemistry and physics what can we do outside real life measurements so we're doing uh, projectiles and are we measuring trajectories can we do speed distance time calculations just all these things that you can build on and when we look at like we've just been talking about how the learning environment and where children learn best is if you think of those seven factors that we've just discussed the majority of those apart from in you know badly polluted areas of which we're lucky in the UK that there aren't any all those factors, all those environmental factors, they're generally better outdoors. So you take the children outdoors to do some learning, they're more engaged, they can pay attention better, they retain more. Um, and they're learning with that real world context. It's actually your teaching is going to be more effective. So their recall of it is going to be quicker. And you can just see the. It actually, I think of it as a sort of scientist on stats. It's more efficient teaching outside because they it, they absorb it better they retain it better, they can recall it better, all of the things that we need them to do, you're going to give them more memorable learning experiences. So I always flip that question on its head and say, why are you learning indoors? 
Yes, yeah. What's the what's the what's the alternative? I think even with I know to our bossy biology seems the most obvious thing to talk about, but even um, I remember talk, teaching chemistry in a sense that you use the playground and and chalk and you do a big version of the atom or something where you talk about you know electronic structure which I've, I've done before. So there's almost like resources outside you forget about and you say trying to make it just slightly different to mix it up a bit makes things um, um, more memorable for kids. And uh, yeah, definitely. That's really good. Some really good tips. So um, thinking about um, where people can find more about the kind of work you do, talk about learnometers, any other places that you would direct people to, um, to kind of follow, follow you or, or any suggestions of um, resources that you find useful and you use and you share with us. So could you tell us a few of those before we finish up today? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If people want to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter um, at Dr. Biol, D-R-B-I-O-L. Lucky as an earlier doctor of Twitter, I got to have Dr. Biol as my handle. Okay. Um, and I'm on Facebook as Dr. Catherine Forsey. In terms of the resource, the resources, I already mentioned um, the Learnometer website, dedicated website that talks about learning environments. All those optimal levels that we talked about, they're all published on there. Um, we have an article uh, called Does Your Classroom Help Children Learn? that's been published in the ASE uh, International Journal and the ASE Primary Science Journal um, that really gives a summary of lots of the things we've talked about today. Um, that's also been shared and published on the Gratmills Learning Rooms website. And in terms of outdoor learning and support and activities for that, um, in my role for Gratmills, they've had me put together a whole package of activity that we've called um, Learning Rooms Outdoors which is a whole bank of practical activities that you can crack on with, all linked to the curriculum and all can easily be done in school grounds. Um, so learning rooms, all of the practical science, STEM and outdoor activities are completely free to access. Um, so we can provide a link to that too. Um, and we just hope teachers enjoy doing them and then they can get in touch with me through that. So if anyone's got any questions, um, they're not sure where to start, then, then please get in touch. And we've got some... Um, online CPD happening um, in December and in March with the ASE on outdoor learning as well. So you can please come along to that um, free online CPD and, and learn a bit more about outdoor learning. We've also got a, a recorded webinar on the Learning Rooms website covering that whole topic of does your classroom help children learn and looking at the Learnometer data again. So if you've listened today and thought, great, but I want to see numbers, I want to see steps, I want it all in place, then that recorded webinar and the resources um, are all there and ready and waiting to help support teachers to improve their learning environments. Wow, so so much, so much to dig into there and explore in, in people's own time. So thank you for those links. And it's been really, it's fascinating talking to you and interesting about all the work you've been doing. And um, hopefully uh, that will go from strength to strength and this will be more um, on the agenda for, you know, new science school buildings, new labs, and just for teachers to be aware of the learning environment, how much impact it has on um you know the progress for their students so thank you for joining me uh, today Catherine well thank you ever so much for giving me the chance to share I mean some of it seems so simple but we know that it's just not being done so if we can help raise awareness a little bit and, and give some practical pointers for how you can make changes in your school um I think it's one of the easiest and cheapest interventions you can make so all the information's there uh, so hopefully we can just crack on and get it done definitely thank you so much for joining me today thanks a lot Andy Thank you again for listening to this episode. I hope you found the research described by Dr. Forsey interesting and applicable to you in your educational context. I think there's plenty to think about in the way that current classrooms could be adapted and new ones created that adhere more closely to the principles discussed. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. I look forward to joining you on the next episode.